Father, you are a holy, holy, holy God. I can't say it enough. Set apart from all creation, speaking billions of stars into existence, molding us together with your, your hands, a careful attention and breathing a life into us. And Oh, what love you show in that picture, Father. I pray that what has been prepared will be most importantly shine a spotlight on you, but not me. For without you, this would be nothing. I thank you for the, the toiling over the labor of things. Thank you for the uh, input from, from Brother Pastor Mike as well uh, in assisting. And um, I pray that it would serve you uh, and, and not flesh. In Christ's name, amen. So, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if we do not preach the gospel. The question becomes, what is the gospel? You know, we could hear the gospel many a times, but we really should be in a position where we just can't hear it enough, right? And for those that are new here, or someone that comes in that may hear this or listens to it later, they might be wondering, what is the gospel that we're talking about? And we can turn to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 through 3, and I think it spells it out pretty clearly. For he says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That is the gospel, in an essence, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And there's a freedom in that that we have. As me and my little six-year-old go through the New City Catechism, there's a part that we're on, I think it's question 31, it talks about justification and sanctification. So then it talks about justification is declared righteousness before God, and, and sanctification is the growing gradual righteousness in God. So then we had to go over what is righteousness, and I was trying to think about how to boil this down to her. I was like, if I can't boil it down, this is a teaching moment for me. And then finally it landed on me to keep it very simple. It is declared our righteousness is what is right according to God's moral law. It really is just that simple. What is right according to God's moral law? That is righteousness. And with that, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, Jesus covers us with his righteousness and takes our sin, and that sin is dead, gone, buried with him. And because he's resurrected, showing that he conquered Satan, hell, death, has a new resurrected body, now we go through this sanctification process where that declared righteousness now 
we're gradually growing in it. And in that, the scriptures tell us there's a freedom that we've been called to. And it is that freedom that I believe Paul is talking about in chapter 9, how we steward our freedoms. This is called the gospel-driven freedom. I was toiling over this and toiling, trying to figure it out. Then one call from a brother in Christ, and that helped provide a little clarity. But gospel-driven freedom. And there's three different areas we're going to talk about. Now, there's a lot of verses. We're not going to go through every single verse because some of them can easily be grouped together. There's a common message in each section that we're going to spend more time on. So the first one is stewarding my freedoms to God's will, not man's will. And that's verses 1 through 18. The second one will be stewarding my freedom to connect. That's verses 19 through 23, being all things to all people. And then the last piece will be stewarding my freedom to spiritual self-discipline, verses 24 through 27. So again, we're going to take a little bit of a dive, but just get the common thing that he's trying to tell us by his grace, by the Lord's grace. Amen? So, Stewarding my freedoms to God's will, not man's. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 8. Brother Lee has already read it, and in this section of 1 through 8, there's a few things happening. As Pastor Cleet preached about last week, he just gave an account to the Corinthian church about how, if they're stronger in some areas than their brothers, how should they utilize their freedom, those God-given rights, to best help that brother? Doesn't mean we're signing off on sin, but these are brothers who maybe they have strong conviction because they were deep in something, a false idol worship before, and now anytime they get towards that meat, it just makes them feel in a way that they're just like, I just can't touch this. So then their conscience is letting them know, don't do it at this time. So then we encourage that brother or sister on to build them up. How do we utilize our freedoms? But now he's facing a similar issue he's saying to the body. A similar issue in which his apostleship and how he stewards his freedoms is being called into question now. And that is the whole verses 1 through 18. He's not defending himself. As Christians, we don't need to defend ourselves, but we do give an account of the truth that we set in in hopes of building people up. And so this is what he's doing. He's building up the flock because he's doing real shepherding. That's what he's supposed to do. Give an account. Hey, this is what's coming your way. This is what's happening within the local body. And this is the Jesus we stand on. So he's proclaiming this to show this is how I use my God-given freedoms. This is how I steward my freedoms onto God's will, not man's. So what's happening here? He starts out with a, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He's giving a defense here. Well, one of the things that we've heard of, and you may or may not have heard of, is these Judaizers. Who's heard of that term, Judaizers? Raise your hand. They were individuals, and it's pretty cool because Paul calls this out in Acts 15 and Galatians 6, 11. He gives you a specific reason of who they really were and why. These Judaizers were those that believe that it's grace 
of Christ and also circumcision. It's both. And so they've been chasing Paul, claiming that he was not a real apostle because he wasn't one of the original ones, that he didn't bear witness to the resurrected Christ. Oh, and man, the apostles are supposed to take what we offer them the local church, he's not even taking any money from us, so he can't be an authentic apostle. And you know how that goes. When you start to have a problem with someone, you start finding more and more ways to dissect them. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, they said, for they say his letters were weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. He has no commendation from Jerusalem, as they did, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 2. And as they say here, since he didn't take assistance, hey, can't be. It's floating from outside to inside the church. And then keep in mind, there's further pushback because you know what happens when you call out someone and people don't like it. Then they're going to find a problem with you. And just think back to 1 Corinthians 8, those he called out that were being in their flesh and not in the spirit of God. Oh, he's got those people coming back. See, I told you he was wrong. We're right. He's not even a real apostle anyway. You know, this, you're going to hear me say a lot about unity because I cringe when I hear people say unity. And the reason why I cringe is because when I watch them or I watch myself and we talk about unity, a lot of times we're not talking about what Romans says, the book of Romans says unity and truth, we're talking about unity in our flesh, and we don't want any divisiveness. But if you look at it, the scriptures say the road is narrow and few take it. So true unity, you're not going to be left with that many. So if you want real unity, if you press into the truth of the word of God, the unity will happen. Don't try to manufacture it yourself. And I'm learning that too. You don't try to manufacture it. Just stick to the word of God. God will take care of the rest. This is when we're trying to do God's work. That's not our job. We've been giving marching orders. Let's just stick to that. So he's establishing, again, as I mentioned, a foundation of truth in which everything is derived from. Is he an apostle? What is an apostle? One who is sent. But the apostles of Christ had a particular way about them, specifics. One is they were handpicked. Christ handpicked each apostle himself. Second, those same apostles bared witness to the resurrected Christ. You go back to 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to five, over 500 at the same time. He was both spirit and flesh, and he appeared to the disciples and apostles alike. And then also, the apostles went on to be empowered by the Spirit to perform miracles they'd only seen Jesus do. Those three things were of utmost importance. Now, I didn't see them addressing the third piece, but they tried to hit him on the other two. And this part is very important. This is where Paul says, have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Hmm. Let's go to Acts 9. Meanwhile, I'm going to read through the whole thing because I think 
it's of utmost importance what occurred in here. Acts 9, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murders. Now, this was Paul. For those who don't know, Paul was originally Saul before he was converted. He was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any, that means Christians, there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he heard Damascus as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's very important. It tells you about a shepherd over a flock. You persecute Jesus' followers, you're persecuting him. Something to remind us on how we deal with each other, right? in increasing fashion. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when his, he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. Listen, for three days he did not eat or drink Listen, if I'm a half an hour of hungry, I'm grouchy. Three days, only by the grace of God that can happen. Anyone ever go three days without eating or drinking? Every time I hear that, it just hits me. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And the Lord said, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. That kind of goes back to the whole, the road is narrow and it's a difficult one. And very few take it. There is suffering involved for the believer. But glory on the other end, because we're suffering what? For the sake of the gospel. So why is this important? And the reason why I wanted to read this, this is a true believer's conversion. This is a true believer's conversion. Let's look at the rest of it. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is a true believer's conversion. That when the Lord, like Ezekiel 36, 25, takes a, a heart of stone and changes it to a heart of flesh, you're going from a place of, I don't want anything of God, to now, I want everything more about God. And the scales, the, the, the falsehood of who you think you are and who you really are, it starts to fall off. You start to see that reality. 
And as he tells you in that verse, in Ezekiel 36, he will put his spirit in you. So when he changes your heart and you receive what he's given to you so freely, you receive his spirit that is a comforter, a teacher that stays with you for an eternity. That is a real conversion. Let me ask you, have you truly experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ? Because there's a lot of people that claim Jesus. Have you experienced that? Did the scales come off? Did you see yourself separated from God? Did you see no hope to make yourself right before God? Did you see the only answer is Jesus Christ? I need to hear that every day, family. This testifies to a couple things. One, he was personally chosen by God. He told Ananias exactly what this man is supposed to do. Two, if we go to 1 Corinthians 15, 18, he says, and last of all, appeared to me also to one abnormally born, kind of indicating that, you know, those brothers were chosen, and then later on, he became a believer, but he has some bragging rights in here. Something I want to talk about. Not that he should boast. He would boast only in Christ, but he actually has something to really, really talk about. All the apostles saw the resurrected Christ, and then Christ ascended into heaven. Now he's glorified. Paul bared witness to the glorified, ascended Jesus Christ. That is huge. Christ called him after he had already ascended. So he, if he wanted to boast a little bit in the flesh, he could say, hey, brothers, that's awesome. <laughs> I actually saw the, the ascended Christ. He didn't actually see him. Sorry, he doesn't give an indication of that. But he bared witness to him. So not only was he chosen by him, but he bared witness to them. And if you go to Acts 10, 19, 11, it says God did extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do things they'd only saw Jesus do. So, yes, he was an apostle. And then he also says, and this is very important, he says, now you are also my living proof. If no one else believes, you are my living proof. This is why we have a calling and there's fruit that the Lord talks about when he talks about the vine. He's the vine and, and we're the branch and we must bear fruit. It's not a, it's not a okay, you, you can kind of bear fruit. No, it's a command. We will bear fruit or we'll be a branch that will be removed. And so with that, the fruit of it is the work that the Lord has laid out before you and the results of it. What is the results we see with Paul? Was he not used to deliver truth to the local Corinthians? Did they not have many that repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus? Were they not gathered now to form a local church? Did he not raise up leaders amongst them? And did he not continually pour into them? Their existence as a local Corinthian church is an affirmation of the work that God has done through Paul. And so it is, family, for you. When you commit to the work of Christ, it affirms the spirit that's in you because you would not do it out of your own flesh. You would not care. When you think about, man, I need to witness more, the work of the spirit. 
when you work on it. That's the work of the Spirit. When you start gathering and taking the local church gathering more seriously because you've been commanded to be under local under-shepherds and to not forsake the gathering, it's by the work of the Spirit. It's affirmation of what he's doing in your heart. When you gather together for Bible study, that's affirmation of what the Lord's doing in your heart. When you sing worship songs and sometimes you feel greater joy than other days, that's the work of the Spirit. When you have children and you have a desire for them to be raised in the Christ, that's the work of the Spirit. It is affirmation that the Spirit of God is working in you so long as it's on to him and not yourself. Let's move forward. So in verses 4 through 14, he really gives a defense in a variety of different ways. And one of the things I want to point out in here, he's talking about, so you remember in Romans 1 where God says, I have made clear my divine nature in all of creation, and man is without excuse. That is basically what he's saying here. He's, in God's economy, all these things are from God. They make sense as to why I have rights to all these things. And then he's going to launch offer to why he's using his freedoms the way he is. Let's look at it. Don't we have a right to food and drink? Don't we have a right to take a believing wife with us? He gets to verse 7, and he says, who serves a soldier at his own expense? Well, what were they occupied by? The Roman Empire. The average Roman soldier received pay and salt. Salt was a precious commodity of that day. And so they received partial pay and the rest in salt. And then if they made it through the years of atrocity and didn't get killed themselves, then at the end of their tenure, whether it be 15, 20 years later, they were given land, and sometimes those lands were cultivated into towns and cities. So people could see amongst them, the Roman soldiers wouldn't be Roman soldiers without someone paying them. Clearly, they're getting paid. Then he goes on to talk about, uh, in verse 9, do not muzzle ox while it's treading out the grain. Uh, that's Deuteronomy 25.4. And you, if you look that up, there's, there was this, what would commonly happen happens to this day. So there's these stalks, and within the stalks is the grain. And so they have this oxen walk around. I actually looked it up like months ago, and was, this little boy was taking this oxen around in this circle in this small area, and the, the oxen was stamping on it, and then the stalks were open, and the grain was coming out, and then along the way, the oxen was eating some of it. True. This is the common sense stuff that the Lord has built in this economy. He eats along the way from some of his labor. That's why he says, is it really about oxen? No. It actually glorifies it testifies to the truth of what God has set up in his economy, in his divine nature. That, you know, if you're working at something, you're going to have a right to get paid for something, to, to receive something from that. A farmer doesn't just give away everything to only take what he got in proceeds to go back and purchase some things and spend money on the very things he could have just fed his family freely from. He's going to take a little bit from it to feed his family and then sell the rest. So these are things that are just in our natural part of our creation that really shows God's divine care. You could go to the Old Testament, Leviticus 6, and God is clearly talking about that the priests, there was a time for there's what is set aside for uh, the ceremonial piece of offering up for their sins. And then there is what can be set aside for the priest to be able to eat. And so they must, be, must eat it in a holy place. He's taking care of his priest. 
again, they would have already known this from what they had just in the Old Testament, in all of God's economy, how he provides for those. So he's appealing to their sense of, look around you. Do you not see this? And then now going back to Scripture to point them back. That's why going to Scripture is just so important because we get our truth that way. This is about, again, about how his freedom in Christ is stewarded according to God's will, not man's will. And so he's setting the stage. Hey, look, look at everything in God's economy and how he sets everything up to take care of us. Look, what's the passage that says, look at the birds in the air. Do they store up? But I provide for them. How much more for you, for us, that we bear his image? Again, God's economy, how he sets things up. There's a piece I want to particularly pay attention to before we move on to the next section. And that is, Back to verse 16. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntary, I am simply discharging a trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just then, just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not to make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Paul is saying he's been called to a specific task. And that task from God is how he is to shepherd, how he is to steward his freedoms. Not about what anyone else says. About, not about anyone calling into question his apostleship. Not about those that are upset with him because he says some things that created some divisiveness but was centered on truth. It is about what God has ordained and given him a direction on, family. And this is for us. We know that when we accept Christ, we are now disciples, and we have been called to go to the ends of the earth and witness to people. So now, let's put ourselves in this place. For when I witness the gospel, I cannot boast, since I'm compelled to witness. Woe to me if I do not witness the gospel. If I witness voluntarily, I have reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in witnessing the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not to make full use of my rights as a disciple in the gospel. That is us. That is us. We have a job to do. I feel like what I've seen, and just here across in different churches, we are too focused on everything we want and not enough of what we're supposed to be doing. I always hear more excuses about, why someone's not doing what they want, but they should make time for talking about everything that should be happening in the local church or anything else. They want this. They want that. But when it comes to themselves, well, you know, we've just had a busy time of life. It's just been a busy season. Wow. And, it's, and it's, it's, we're all in that, right? We do a version of that. What if we put more effort on what we've been called to do and less on everything else that we can easily point out that really is not for us to worry about? We've been given a task. That's to be a disciple. Paul was given a task to be a preacher of the word. And he says, woe to him if I don't do it. It's a command. We have a command to be a disciple, witnessing, making disciples. If we just focus on that, we will see his transformative power and see the change we're looking for 
in our neighborhood, in our city. Amen. So let's continue. Under the gospel-driven freedom, we not only steward our freedoms to God's will, not man's, but we also steward our freedoms to connect. That's verses 19 through 23. Paul says, though I am free, I belong to no one. This is great because this gives us a picture of something. When we operate in Christ alone and we're not beholden to everyone else, we're not worried about unity, we're not worried about divisiveness so long as we stay in the rock-solid truth of Christ, we are not beholden to whatever else anyone else has to say or what their concerns are in that matter because we know we are centered on Christ. And he's saying, listen, though I am free, I belong to no one. I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I'm only a slave to Christ, and he wants me to be the slave to everyone to be able to deliver the gospel, to preach what he has commanded me to preach. And it is the same for us. We need to continually trust that God has it. As I said before, I think we're trying to manage too much of what's in God's plate. He's got that. We need to work on managing what he's put in our plate, which is keep it very simple. Be a disciple, witnessing. And Paul is talking about, this is how I steward my freedoms to connect to all people. Let's go further. He sent Paul to the Gentiles. It's the part I want to st- stop with on here. He sent Paul, a Jew, to Gentiles. Why didn't he send one of the other disciples that would have been more Gentiled up? He sent a Jew of Jews to Gentiles. So in a nation right now where, listen, we're on the tail end, I get it, of European colonization. And everyone sees people, things that have carried on throughout the generations on how we treat each other and how we deal with each other. And the world is trying to tackle it, but they're trying to tackle it through their flesh. I think it's great that we can learn about each other. Hey, learn about, I, I learn about my brother who's whatever, Irish or Dutch, you learn a little bit about his history, you learn a little bit about the area you're in. Hey, do we not learn, do we not see missionaries being trained up in languages and learning about the demographics and the places they're going and learning about the culture? We do, but that's still secondary because that's not what's going to win people over. What's going to win people over? The gospel, God softening people's hearts. So this action of him sending Paul to the Gentiles smacks against the affirmation period we're in where we say, hey, listen, you're white. You can't talk to a black person unless you black yourself up a little bit more. You need to learn a little bit more about African-American history, and you need to know what our pains and suffering is. Hey, that's nice, but that's not what's going to soften things because that's secondary. Even though in this flesh it feels like it's first, it's not. At the core of all the strife and pain and suffering and killing and molestation is the sinful nature of man. That's what's at the core. And as long as you get that through Christ, you have enough to talk to anyone. That's all that matters in the end. You do the other stuff, yeah, you'll learn some language because there's a language barrier. You learn a little bit about the culture and the demographics. But the world is doing now is making it an overemphasis now. You're disqualified. 
because you're white now. You're disqualified because you're Samoan. You're disqualified because you're Asian. You're disqualified because you're black. You have to do it our way. It's not about their way. God created all of them. So it's not about what the culture tells you. It is about what the God tells you who created us all. So if we focus on the fact that we just deliver the gospel, that he's the one softening hearts, we will see people transform whether we know a lot about them or not. Don't get me wrong, in my flesh, I'd love for people to know more about things that have happened in the country and atrocities. I don't think people know enough. But that's not what provides salvation. I know in my spirit what I'm one in my flesh is useless. So we stick to Christ. What was happening there at this time? So we can really take a hold of why is he doing this? Well, he was in a Corinth was a heavy trade area. There was great wealth. There was great poverty there. They also had a thing. It was such wealth that they frowned upon hard work. So they thought hard work was for poor people. So Paul, recognizing, see, he's giving us an understanding how to bifurcate the two. What does it mean to be all things to all people? And what does it mean to actually throw out things that may interrupt the gospel? Listen. People think they frown upon hard work. Well, I'm going to work. Matter of fact, look up tent making. Tent making is hard work. Manual, stinky, dirty, heavy laden work. So I'm not going to be like the people of that day, of that time, I, or in the area I'm in. I'm going to do hard work amongst them. I also show what a Christian looks like to work and earn their way. Also, they had great speakers of the day. Those speakers were in the back pockets of people they kept in their homes. Hmm, where do we see that today? It's called relational debt. I let you stay in my home. I pay you. You say what I want you to say. Paul doesn't want to blend in with that either. That's why he doesn't take anything from the church. I don't want to be yet another speaker taking money and blending in. So he's understanding from his discernment from God that the way he should steward his freedoms is to not blend in that particular way. But there's other ways he can blend in, such as when he's amongst Jews, he's a Jew. What does that look like? Well, he keeps their feasts and he eats their foods. He's Paul the Jew. Now, if they start worshiping a false god, well, he's going to walk away from that. But when they're doing things that are, he knows that he's free from that, so he's not committing a sin to be able to say, I'm going to eat some food along with you guys. That's good, so I can deliver the gospel. That's good. He's given us an example. We have many cultures around us, folks, so we need to know, how do we do this? We can go around them, eat their foods. But the moment they start pulling out some false idol of God, that's when, oh, that's when you have to put the brakes on things. But in being all things to people, you can do that. Let me tell you how deep it gets. I, I still cringe every time I hear, I, I read this part. It was, make sure I got this right. Acts 16, 1 through 4. Paul was so serious about being all things to all people. He says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where he found a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman and a Greek father. The brothers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he took him and circumcised him on the account of the Jews in that area, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Well, because his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek, he was considered Jewish. You can't take an uncircumcised person in the synagogue. 
So imagine that conversation. Hey, Timothy, you know I love you, brother, right? She told me I love you. I really love you. What's going on? Well, brother, you're considered a Jew, right? You go in the synagogue. They're going to ask you if you're uncertain. I don't even know if they check. They check if the person was circumcised or not. Boy, that would be interesting. We've got to check before you get in the synagogue. No, thanks. I'm trying to quit. Imagine that. Now, if someone said to you, you need to go get circumcised, he's like, this is a lot you're throwing on me, brother. I need a few days to think about this. <laughs> Hold on, man. But it doesn't sound like that. Timothy just say, okay, let's go. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> That's scary. But it says a lot about obedience, and it says a lot about what Paul is willing to go to, what ends in being all things to all people, so he can what? Win more souls. That's what he's willing to go to. Acts 17, 22 through 25 gives a great illustration when he goes wrong. Men of Athens, he doesn't sit back and curse them out because he says that you're just religious and you're silly. He talks them up. Hey, you're very religious. There's a statue about the unknown God. That's my launch pad right there. Always looking. See, when we focus on what we're supposed to do and not on everything else that we want to try to control, then you know what happens? God will do miraculous things in us. That's what it comes out. We got the same spirit in us, the same spirit in us that brought Jesus from the dead. So this is a lesson for disciples of Christ to actually focus on what you're supposed to be focused on. When you're focused about everything and everything else, what's not happening in the church, what you need to see happening or what's happening over here and so on, you're not focused on what you're supposed to be focused on. And how can then you... Remember, you are a branch connected to the vine. And while you're spending time on what you're not supposed to, then you're not receiving the fullness of the vine. You're, you're quenching the spirit in disobedience, focusing on what you not need focus on. So therefore, you're not going to be used like Paul and see this clarity. Does that make sense, family? The weaker brother, he already addresses that in 1 Corinthians 8. We got we to consider, was it a sin issue or was it just a matter of a conviction and conscience? And we deal with it accordingly to encourage them. End goal is that we share in the gospel's blessings. I love how he says this in verse 23. He says, I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So it goes back to that whole justification and sanctification thing. Declared righteousness before God, growing gradual righteousness in God. When you are focused on what you've been called to do, he is gradually growing you in the very righteousness that Christ has covered you with. When you don't do that, you're quenching the spirit and you're staying in an immature state. That's what we want to avoid. So when we are living out what we're supposed to and we're witnessing to someone, we're experiencing the blessing of growing in righteousness. The other person, maybe for the first time they've heard it, experiencing the blessing of having the scales fall off and coming to full fruits and repentance and faith. Or maybe it's another brother in Christ that's just growing more in Christ-likeness. In gospel-driven freedom, in stewarding your freedom to be all things to all people, you're not the one just delivering truth, but continuing to be delivered in a sanctification process. 
both sides share. So in a gospel-driven freedom, it's not only I steward my freedoms according to God's will, not man's will, and I steward my freedoms to connect, but also I steward my freedoms to self-discipline. This part is very important because it speaks aloud as I've been talking about what we're focused on. What are we focused on in our lives? We have to be disciplined, and he gives us some great imagery of what's going on. In that time, it was Rome, they had the Olympic Games every four years. There was a local area, Ismia, I think it's called Ismia Games, and they did it every two years. And basically, it was everything from boxing and discus throwing and javelin and so on. And he gives some great imagery. Let's just stick with the boxing. So anyone ever watched a boxing match before? Yes. Boxers train every day so it becomes automatic. Because if they don't, they're going to be jabbing aimlessly, as he puts it here in the air. But in order to determine who has won the boxing match, they compute how many jabs thrown, and how many jabs landed. So one guy may have thrown 500 jabs and landed 100. The other guy may have thrown 250 jabs and landed 180. One guy threw more, but still was less effective. And the other guy was specific. As he jabbed, he was more effective. He hit the target. That's what Paul is talking about. We are to be self-disciplined because we recognize that we're in a fallen world and many things that will catch us in a snare. What we watch, what we listen to, who we hang around, what we accept, what we sign off on, what we focus on that we should not be focused on. We get caught in a snare. And self-discipline also speaks about how much time we spend preparing. I thought about... You know, I thought about we had went on a small vacation and how much time I put into, into setting that up. And I thought, do I do that in preparing how I'm going to witness to people? Do I calendar it in and then set a little outline on what we're going to do and where we're going to go? Do I spend time in those sort of details? Discipline. Also, we want to protect ourselves, right? So we want to use all means of grace at our disposal. There's the preaching of the word. as of utmost importance, the preaching of the word, because it, it, he uses it. He tells us in the scripture, he uses it to prepare us, to grow us. There's Bible study. There's worship music. There's speaking truth to each other. Using all means, family. We want to be spiritually self-disciplined. And so he gives us that imagery of an athlete. I looked up one other thing. I looked up, uh, I think it was Simone Biles. And she said, hey, I I usually spend about 32 hours a week practicing. Now, it may seem like, oh, well, it's not that much. If you saw the way those bodies take a pounding when they're landing on those beams, the joints, the knees, the, the muscles, they're training. They have to have proper nutrition. And if anyone ever worked out, you're first tearing apart the muscle. Then you have to have proper nutrition to feed the muscle, and you have to have proper rest so the muscle can grow. And so there is much work in it. No Olympian just one day a week, they train, and the other days they eat some Snickers and Coca-Cola. 
they're denying themselves of much. And so we must deny ourselves of much so then we can be focused and be more disciplined to protect ourselves from being led astray or from quenching the spirit. In Galatians 5.13, he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to self-indulgence. The freedom we have in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we repent of our sins, put our faith in Jesus, we have the spirit of God in us, and now we are free. Free from ourselves and free to follow Christ. And our freedoms are not to be used for self-indulgence, but to be on point with what God tells us in increasing fashion. I'm not saying this to beat everyone up. We're all in the same place. But we can use this for saying, listen, we need to be more focused. How do we use our freedoms? How do we steward our freedoms onto the will of God? Let me give you an image, Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. As he was leading the Israelites through the desert, he was, and the clouds are kind of used as an imagery of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God leading them. You're free to follow me to where I want you to go. The same thing. We have the Spirit of God in us. We are free to follow him to where he wants us to go. Athletes train for endurance. We want to train so we can stay in the race, so we don't quench the spirit. What are you doing in your daily walk with God? Listen, I know some people got no family, big families, in between that, heavy working jobs. But ask yourself, when I want to find time, what did I do this last week or in this last month where I found time for something I really wanted to do? Do I do that for God? I'm not saying it to beat everyone up, but the truth is we can do better in our walk, in our pursuit of God and making it a priority and no excuses. Some of you, when I've talked to you on the phone, I'll ask you, how's your walk going? What's going on? And you'll hear me consistently say to you, we want to increase in having less of an excuse. And I don't say it to beat anyone up because I'm included in there too. But God wants us to take what we have. That means... You could easily just jump out. I've done that. I can't spend a half an hour, an hour with God, so I just don't worry about it. I can get to it tomorrow. I only have five, ten minutes. Well, then I'm going to do five, ten minutes, and then I'll do five, ten minutes later. I'll do another five, ten minutes, and I will pursue him throughout the day because I need him. Because if I don't have him, I can easily be led astray. Spiritual self-discipline is of most importance for us. And remember this, I say this in closing. Jesus set the ultimate example of how one stewardship of their freedoms. Stepped out of the glory of heaven, took on this broken flesh, lived a perfect life, let people spit on him, beat him to the point that flesh is hanging off, put him on a cross, and died for you and me so he could bring us salvation. And we have that Jesus in us. What are we going to do with it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the example that Paul has given us 
in 1 Corinthians 9. We thank you for what he was showing and teaching the local Corinthian church. And may it be so for us, Father. We all fall short. And so may we just be pulled just an inch closer to you and more transformed in your son's likeness. May we care just an, an inch more about the things of you. May we care about spiritual discipline in our stewarding of our freedoms. May we make plans for it. May we challenge each other. May we see real unity in the truth of you and not in anything else. May we see gospel-driven freedoms according to you and not us. In Christ's name, amen.